is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Catholic Review Radio is a weekly radio program and podcast hosted by Catholic Review Media, the news operation of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic partners for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to our listeners each week. This is Chris Gunty of the Catholic Review. With us today on Catholic Review Radio is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron is Auxiliary Bishop of Los Angeles and founder of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. He's also the host of Catholicism, a groundbreaking documentary about the Catholic faith that aired on PBS, and you might have seen it on video at your parish. A lot of parishes do that. And in the interest of full disclosure, Bishop Barron and I were college seminary classmates way back in the day. Welcome to the show, Bishop Barron. Hey, Chris. Always good to see you. Bishop Barron, in your new book, Eucharist, writing the introduction, you talk about distributing communion during Masses at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. I've been there probably 20 times or more. It, it's a, an amazing place to be. Mm-hmm. But you said you had the sense that you were carrying food to those who were desperate for it. What makes people desperate for the Eucharist? We're born for it. We're, we, we live for it. Uh, Augustine said that, Lord, you made us for yourself, and therefore our heart is restless till it rests in thee. Um, the Eucharist is God's love now made incarnate and offered for us to take into ourselves. So it's what alone can satisfy the deepest longing of the heart. And that story I told in the book about St. Peter's, and I think I said, you know, to some degree, it's maybe a little Italian melodrama, but um, it, it was the people reaching out to me because as you know, you don't like stand in a little place in a, a neat line forms. You kind of just go out into this crowd and people are all around you and they're all stretching out their hands and they're saying, Father, please, please. And uh, it just struck me that that's the right attitude. That's the right gesture. As we come up in body Christ, amen, you know, that, that's the wrong attitude, that you should approach it as though you're someone who's really starving for the bread of life. Without the Eucharist, we can't live spiritually. So it's like someone who's hungry for for physical food if you're starving. And I think we got tons of people in our society now who are starving for Mm -hmm. spiritual sustenance. And that's where you find it. Mm -hmm. Years ago, I heard a priest uh, talking about the Eucharist, and he said, you know, sometimes it takes more... more faith to believe that that's bread oh, yeah. than it is to, than, than to believe that it's that it's the the body of Christ. Right. But I think that's changed over the years. And you and I have talked about these numbers all along. The studies that show not only are more people not identifying with any religious mm-hmm. affiliation, but also the number of Catholics who actually believe in the real presence or understand what the real presence is in the Eucharist has dropped off precipitously. Uh, why don't more Catholics understand the real presence? You know, Cardinal George said something that has always struck me. He said, when, when the piety falls away, the doctrine often falls away because the pious practice is meant not to be something superficial, but it's a way of honoring the truth of the doctrine. And what he meant, I think, was, like even like when we were little kids, this was still around, you come into church and you know, people would genuflect before going into the pew. There wasn't an immediate um, social gathering after Mass. There was still a sense of, of quiet and, and reverence. Even things like who, who touches the sacred elements, who gets in the sanctuary. 
Well, all those were meant to be the pious practices that surround the doctrine of the real presence. Well, if you get rid of the pious practices, well, all that silly, all that superficial, all that secondary, well, in time, what's going to happen is people stop believing mm -hmm. in the doctrine. They'll say, well, no one seems to act any different in the presence of this reality. Uh, they seem to treat it like they treat any other symbol. Um, let's all just talk and carry on in its, in its presence. It begins to signal to people, I guess it doesn't matter that much. Um, and then, I mean, just the falling away from religion, you, you fall away from the faith. Of course, you're going to fall away from the sacraments. Mm -hmm. You fall away from a community that reverences the Eucharist. You'll forget how to reverence the Eucharist or, or why you should bother. Mm -hmm. So I think all those are reasons why there's been this attenuation of Eucharistic faith. Yeah. One of the presences of Christ in the Eucharist is in the community. So sure. how do you balance that? between of needing a parish to be a community, but also needing to be reverent. Well, go right back to Vatican II, because you know, our generation, we, we took in a legitimate corrective. The corrective was, there are many ways that Christ is present to us. And so Vatican II goes through, as you suggest, you know, in the community, in the word proclaimed, in the person of the priest. So I think of that now, all my years of being a priest, now a bishop, when I'm incensed at the altar, well, it's not because, hey, Bob Barron, what a great guy he is. It's, it's, it's as a priest, I'm an embodiment of, of Christ. Okay, so Vatican II affirms that. But then Vatican II also says, but he is really, truly, and substantially present in the Eucharist in a way that's qualitatively different. See, and that's, that's an important balance. So we don't just say, oh, sure, the Christ is present in the Eucharist and in the poor and in the Word and in the... No, he is in all those things, but he's in a qualitatively different way because he's really, truly, and substantially present. Here's an Aquinas distinction uh, in regard to the sacraments. Thomas says, is Christ present in all the sacraments? Yes, in the measure that the virtus Christi is present, meaning the power of Christ. Think of, as I baptize a baby, well, that's not Bob Barron, it's the power of Christ operative in the sacrament. But Aquinas says, in the Eucharist, Ipse Christus is present, Christ himself. See, that's his way of saying he's really, truly, and substantially present, different, in a different manner than he is in the other sacraments. And I would say, following Vatican II, in a different manner than he is in these other presences. So that's an important distinction to keep making. Mm -hmm. The Archdiocese of Baltimore is promoting a year of the Eucharist from June 2021 mm -hmm. to June 2022, from Corpus Christi to Corpus Christi. Bishop Barron, how can efforts such as this or the U.S. Bishop's Eucharistic Revival Project, which you have, have done a lot of work on, how can that help Catholics understand the real presence? Yeah, I'll, I'll take some credit. When I was chair of the Evangelization Committee for the USCCB, I brought up the, this Pew Forum study that showed 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. And I said, brothers, I just think we have to do something about this, you know? So that was the origin. Then we began to meet and plan. And then I stopped being chair. My term was up. And then it's Bishop um, Drew Cousins of St. Paul, who's now the chair. So he's taken the lead there. But the idea is a three-year process of revival, looking at the Eucharist under the rubrics of the true, the good, and the beautiful. And, and it works this way, the true all the doctrines about the Eucharist. So things we've just been talking about and, right. and real presence, what does that mean? Understanding it better. Now the good. We've also talked about this. The Eucharist has implications for how we live the Christian life. 
we're meant to go out from the Eucharist to change the world and all that. So the, 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 um, the good work that flows from the Eucharist. So that's the good. And then finally, the beautiful. The beautiful would be all of the liturgical and rubrical and devotional practices that surround the Eucharist, how we approach the Eucharist, how we reverence the Eucharist, how we worship the Eucharist, how we celebrate the Eucharist. And I think that's really a cool program, the true, the good, and the beautiful, all three of those. And we want now at the parish level, the diocesan level, the regional level, and then finally the national level to celebrate Eucharist under these different headings. Sounds like a good plan. And we listened to the Bread of Life discourse this summer in the Sunday Gospel yeah. readings, and you kind of addressed this in the book. I, I thought about what Jesus said when the crowds came looking for him after he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Mm -hmm. He tells the crowds they're looking for him because they ate their fill of the bread and fish. And I guess that's kind of like people coming back to church the week after the parish picnic because they've been fed well on burgers and hot dogs. Yeah, right. I mean, maybe <laughs> it's a little bit too uh, transactional. What do we have to do to get people to come for the bread of life, this food that they long for that you've been talking about? You know, I'll go outside the Catholic framework for a second. Uh, every single Billy Graham sermon has basically this structure. You've tried this to be happy, haven't you? And it hasn't worked. You've tried, and he goes through, you know, wealth and, and pleasure and power and all the worldly things. You've tried these, haven't you? And the people are going, yeah. Yeah, I'm happy. Well, I've got what will make you happy, says Billy Graham, and then he invites people to Christ. Well, that's as old as the hills, that, that approach, and I think it's right, is we have to convince people of their deeper hungers. See, the trouble, Chris, with, with secularism, and here I rely on Charles Taylor, the great Catholic philosopher, for the first time, arguably, in human history in the West today, we have a culture largely predicated upon the assumption that we can be perfectly happy apart from a transcendent referent. There's no other culture. I mean, go back to ancient Syria and, and Babylon and Egypt and come right up through the ages. No one thought that was true. Everyone thought that to be truly happy, I have to have a reference to God or the gods or the sacred, right? For the first time, maybe in our whole human history, a lot of people are like, yeah, I don't know, so what? You know, I, I can be happy with the goods of the world. Well, we know that you can't. And by we here, I mean we religious people know that that's a lie. And so to awaken people to that, the Augustinian hunger of the heart, to point out, even sometimes to rub people's noses in the fact that this is not making you happy, is it? When you say, boy, I just have enough you know, sexual pleasure, I just have enough worldly goods and money, it doesn't work. And, and religious people are meant to be prophets in our society who keep making that claim, keep making that argument. So I think that's how we have to stir up the hunger thereby for the Eucharist. Thank you so much. We have been chatting with Bishop Bob Barron, Auxiliary Bishop of Los Angeles, about the Eucharist. After the break, we're going to be joined by George Matisek, a regular host of this show and the new managing editor of the Catholic Review. You are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Archdiocese of Baltimore makes the protection of children a leading priority in its parishes, schools, and other ministries. The Archdiocese seeks to keep kids safe through training and background checks and by implementing a zero-tolerance policy for anyone credibly accused of abusing a child. 
For more information about the Archdiocese's efforts to keep our children safe, please visit www.archbalt.org accountability. Catholic News from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. Nearly 200 people gathered at St. Anne in East Baltimore on All Saints Day for a special Mass drawing attention to six black Catholics on the path to sainthood. Prior to Mass, celebrated by Bishop Bruce Lewandowski, a procession into the church was held with members of the community carrying portraits of the six sainthood candidates. They include Mother Mary Lang, Baltimore-based founder of the Oblate Sisters of Providence, Sister Thea Bowman, the first African-American member of the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration, Julia Greeley, known as the City of Denver's Angel of Charity, Mother Henriette Delisle, founder of the Sisters of the Holy Family, Father Augustus Tolton, and Pierre Toussaint. The Mass was organized by a national campaign made of parishioners from the Baltimore Pastorate of St. Anne, St. Francis Xavier, and St. Wenceslaus. Members of the campaign are collecting signatures in a letter written to Pope Francis asking him to expedite the canonization of the six candidates. Quote, while there are no U.S. African-American saints, there are 11 white Americans who have been canonized, end quote, the letter says to the Pope. The letter asked the Pope to canonize the six candidates, quote, immediately. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. The Justice and Peace Committee at St. Ignatius in Baltimore will host a November 16 discussion with some of the candidates for the 2022 gubernatorial election. The event, scheduled for 6 to 8 p.m., will focus on a wide range of social issues pertinent to Baltimore City and Maryland at large, according to a news release from the parish. Invited were all candidates who had officially announced or indicated a serious consideration to run and received more than a 1% support in available opinion polls. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. From the newsroom of the Catholic Review, I'm Kevin Parks. This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Welcome back to Catholic Review Radio. Our guest, well, our guest host, or our host who's a guest, this segment is George Matisak, one of our frequent uh, producers and hosts of the show. Uh, but we're going to talk today with George about his new role as managing editor at the Catholic Review and Catholic Review Media. Welcome, George. Hey, Chris. Good to be here. George, you've been with the Catholic Review for 24 years now, a lot of different positions over, over the time. With the retirement of Paul McMullen, you moved up to managing editor. What do you think that role is going to be like for you as you move forward? Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's, a, it's an opportunity to be able to tell the stories of the Archdiocese of Baltimore and even around the world. So it, it's, it's a good chance to get to know the people even more than I do. I, I've been here, as you said, 24 years. So I, I know a lot of the people in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. I know the parishes and the schools and the colleges and all the healthcare institutions. But I, I want to learn even more about what they're doing and, and get those good stories out there because there, there's a lot of tremendous things happening in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. What are some of the challenges of reporting for Catholic journalism today? Well, I think the biggest challenge is, is resources. And it's not just limited to Catholic publications. Secular media is also dealing with this challenge as well. But just, just as an example, when I started the Catholic Review, there were probably about 50 people working for the Catholic Review and its related organizations. So we had some other thing, other publications that we were doing. 
So we've gone from a staff of 50 to about maybe 10 or so right now. So just trying to do as much as we can with the resources we, we can is a challenge. And and since the secular media is also downsizing, they are not covering religion the way they used to. I know, again, when I started, the Baltimore Sun, for example, had a full-time religion reporter. I, I don't know if they have that now. So we're trying to pick up the slack from what the secular media is not able to cover it, but it is a challenge with our own limited resources. Mm -hmm. And we are fortunate because we're one of the only publications in the Catholic press to have a full-time visual journalist. Kevin Parks does a tremendous job there. And we just hired a bilingual staff writer, Priscilla Doran, who's doing a fantastic job. And we're, we're gonna be making some additional hires. So, so resources is the big challenge, I think. Mm -hmm. And I know the Sun has some people who kind of specialize in religion reporting, but it's not their full time job. You know, it's not that's not the only thing they do. Whereas you're right, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, even almost every major American newspaper had a full time religion reporter or, and sometimes two, you know, because the because of the, the importance of the work. When you look at, at what you've done so far over the years at Catholic Review, do you have some of your favorite stories? I know you did one recently that really was uh, very powerful. It's the cover story in the November issue about Wayman Scott, an artist. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, that, that was a fun story that, to see come alive. Uh, I, I was an acquaintance of Wayman. I had met him maybe 10 or 15 years ago when I was involved in some young adult ministry. And we just became Facebook friends. I, I, don't, I don't really know him that well. We were just acquaintances. So I just happened to notice in my Facebook feed that um, these pictures popped up from Wayman showing some of the art that he had done. He's an, an African-American artist based at Baltimore Clayworks in Mount Washington. And the art was just beautiful. It displayed, uh, it was a sculpture, a clay sculpture he had made of the Pieta, but it was done with African-American figures. And I was just struck by how beautiful it was. So I, I reached out to him and asked him if he'd be interested in talking to us and I met him and it was just a beautiful story of, of how he had all these encounters with grief and how he expressed, how, how he kind of came to terms with healing through his art and his sculptures. So that, that story was uh, really powerful and it, it's had a lot of positive reaction and, and we're, we're happy to tell that story. And the photos that Kevin took are, are gorgeous. They're beautiful. And, and again, when you get back to resources, we were limited in the number of pages we could do with it, but we did have it on the cover and two pages. So we were able to display some of Kevin's art, but there's a lot more art on the web. So if you go to see the story on the website, you can actually see more of Wayman's sculptures there. That's great. What are some of the other favorite stories you've done over the years? I've been here over 20 years, so there's a lot of good stories. I, I think just off the top of my head, a couple that stand out. Uh, again, it's amazing how things come your way. This one was involving a priest, a much-loved priest of the Archdiocese named Father Milton Hipsley. And I, I was receiving these letters from Father Hipsley. They, uh, they would come like every week or two. They were handwritten letters, all in capital letters, and they would just talk about the importance of prayer or the rosary or the importance of finding God in nature. And I was really struck by the beauty of these letters, especially since I knew that Father Hipsley was struggling with Alzheimer's disease. So I, I reached out to Father Hipsley and I reached out to his family to see if I could get permission to meet with him and talk with him. And I went out to meet with him and it was a beautiful story about how he knew that his mind was slipping away, but he was still taking time to write these letters. Mm 
to me, I was practically a stranger to him, but he had met me once, uh, maybe a few times for stories. And he was reaching out to me, still sharing his ministry. He found a way to, to share his ministry. So even though his mind was slipping away from him, he was still carrying out his ministry. So that was one of my favorites. There are lots of others. I remember that story and we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of good response on that, especially from other families who were dealing with a family member with Alzheimer's or dementia. And they were very much inspired by that story because they said it was it showed a great respect to the person. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of what we do is it, we're able to connect with people in that way. Even with the Wayman story, I I had someone reach out to me who lost her daughter, lost a son to suicide, and she was very struck by Wayman's art and and found the article to be very helpful to hers. So that was good to hear as well. I think that's one of the really great joys that we have in our work is that we're able to share not only pain, but also joy and all of that embedded within the faith that we have, that every person is made in the dignity of God and that all of us are destined for something better than this life. Uh, so it's it's great to be able to share those kinds of stories. And you also get a chance to meet some well-known people as well. I, I, I like telling the stories of everybody, everyday people, but you also get to meet some significant players in politics and, and the church. I've had the chance to interview governors and mayors and sports figures like John Harbaugh and Brooks Robinson and Matt Burke. And we're hoping to have Matt Burke as a guest on this radio show, in fact. And I, I had a chance to talk to Justice Scalia as well. So you get to tell those that side of, this, of the, the, um, the world as well. Uh, I think one other person who comes to mind that was uh, interesting to meet was Kirk Bloodsworth. I don't know if you remember his story, but he was on death row for a, a murder that he did not commit. And just to to hear the, the things that he endured. And then finally, uh, DNA testing showed that he was innocent and he was freed from jail. And he actually converted to Catholicism through his experience in jail with a prison chaplain and um uh, Bishop John Ricard, a former urban vicar here in the Archdiocese of Baltimore, actually received him into the church in prison, right below where the execution was to take place. So it was it just to get to tell really powerful stories that you're not going to see in other places. Mm -hmm. We've got a survey that's currently ongoing to ask people what they think about the Catholic Review. We're trying to find out what their preferences are, what things we might be able to improve what things maybe we're doing that that are not resonating with readers. It's currently available. If the survey itself is not simply open to all. It's kind of by invitation only. But if you've got an invitation, we sure hope that you will respond to it. You might have gotten an invitation by email or uh, by a postcard. But what are we hoping to learn from that survey and how do we plan to use that information as we move forward in, in figuring out how to better edit the magazine? We really want to know what the readers want to read. Like, what are the stories that are of interest to them? What's of value to them? Do they do they use the calendar that we, we have a calendar of events? Do they use that? Um, would they like movie reviews in the paper? Uh, do they want more features? Are our stories too long? Or are they too short? Like, what do our readers want to see in the Catholic Review? And, and then we'll take that information and, and kind of craft a plan for better meeting the needs of our readers and producing a better product. We already produce a great product. As you know, we've been news organization of the year for three consecutive years with the Maryland, Delaware, DC Press Association. So we've got a strong foundation to build on and we're looking for help from, from our readers to do that. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I, I think has been uh, interesting, we've, we've gotten a lot of responses so far 
in our last survey, you know, we asked people how many of the, the last four issues they read and two thirds had read four of the last four issues and, and, you know, 80% had read three of the last four issues. And we're, we're seeing the trends already. We don't have the full report yet, but we're seeing the trends are, are pretty much running the same for this. I think one of the things that brings out is that when we do come into people's homes directly by mail into their home, it makes a difference. They do take the time to read it. They, they take the time to get to know a little bit more about their Catholic faith. What do we hope to accomplish as we deliver news, information, education? How do you think that is accomplished by what we do? Well, I, I think it, it helps inspire people to live the faith. Even There are people who get the magazine that, that don't go to church, and they might not have any connection to the faith, except through that magazine that comes in the mail. So if it's sitting on a coffee table somewhere, who knows who's going to see that magazine? Who's going to read it? We've had, in our history, we've had priests who have been inspired to become priests specifically because of the Catholic Review. So it, it does have an impact far beyond what we can even think of. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Well, we're looking forward to some great things as you take on this role as managing editor of Catholic Review Media. And that's not just the magazine that comes out once a month, but it also includes all this wonderful content on the website. And then that gets pushed out to social media on Facebook and Twitter and those kinds of things. I'm really looking forward to working with you in this role. And I think, I think we're going to have some fun and we're going to be able to inspire our readers. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, and I just want to say I'm very grateful to you and to Paul and to all the tremendous mentors that I've had at the Catholic Review, uh, Joe Ryan and Teresa Wiseman, Dan Menninger, and especially Christopher Gall, who was my first great mentor. And I hope to carry on their legacy. I think you are. Well, we have been talking today with George Matisek, who is managing editor of Catholic Review Media. He's also a regular host of this program, Catholic Review Radio. So good to have you with us, George. Thanks, Chris. You are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Thanks for spending some time with us. The Catholic Review is the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the Catholic Church full-time. Pick up the monthly magazine at your parish or have it delivered to your home. Subscribe to our e-newsletter for twice-weekly updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Read it today in print or online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. Tune in to Catholic Review Radio next week. Available on WMET 1160 AM and 103.1 FM. Also, WSJF 92.7 FM in the Sykesville area and WVTO 92.7 FM in Baltimore City. Check us out on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Review Radio. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May Almighty God bless us and keep us always in his love.